Welcome to Match Cut, the movie podcast where we take two movies with the exact same rating on IMDb and break that tie. My name is Aaron. I'm here with my friend and co-host, Matt. Hello. Howdy. Uh, Before we get into today's episode, if you have a suggestion for movies or movies you'd like us to watch, you can reach us by email at matchcut at gmail.com or on Twitter at matchcut. So, real life, not too much time has passed since our last episode and since I last asked you this question, but uh, what stories have you been getting into? I watched Wonder Woman 1984. Ooh, only new movie to come out in like months. Yeah, I watched it on HBO Max in my home. Um, I there were really big problems with that film that Mm -hmm. are apparent through watching it that there was just such maybe it was because there was so much dumpster fire around the first one you didn't you (laughs) excused some of the issues that might have existed I'd have to go back and watch the uh, first Wonder Woman movie to see that that's not to say that you know it's obviously a bad film now in hindsight but the second movie it was a mess, really. <laughs> um, Gal Gadot's acting was wooden, stiff, and uninspired. And basically, the only thing that kept the movie going was the supporting cast of Chris Pine, Pedro Pascal, and Kristen Wiig. All of them. Mm. Any scene where they were in it, it was really hard. It like Gal Gadot's acting was taking me out of it. I think I mentioned that to you. Yeah. Is it, is it kind of like along those lines of like the stuff that plagued the uh, entire DC universe films where it's just like, ah, well, it doesn't really have, doesn't have that Marvel magic or now I guess that Disney magic, but we're going to, we're going to own everything. Um, It's it's hard to say because again those three actors I mentioned are still putting in fantastic performances. You know Pedro Pascal mm-hmm. is kind of chewing the scenery in some of these scenes, but like <laughs> there's a real there's a realness to his character of this '80s huckster that was yeah. you know doing television ads for a a an oil co-op that he's making <laughs> called Black Gold Cooperative. Ugh. I think a a real big problem with the movie is something that would, that does kind of plague the final act of the first one is there's no true central villain villain. Mm -hmm. Like the, and so it's come out recently. Patty Jenkins has said that the, the final act of uh, wonder woman, where it was kind of going for this message of like, you know, there is just sometimes people are just bad, but like, through the right actions and the right people, you know, the overall goodness of humanity can win out. Mm-hmm. Um, the studio literally forced her to have a big, dumb superhero fight of smashing tanks at each other. Yeah. And they didn't necessarily have that in this movie, but I think the script really needed a central villain, but because they kind of do some things to redeem the max Lord character and not not make the 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 Christian the Kristen Wig character of uh, Barbara something or another the her doctor character <laughs> yeah she like they're both very sympathetic villains and it's like mm-hmm. 
it needed another pass of a writer to really bring that to the forefront that Wonder Woman is fighting against these the the darker angels of human nature rather than the comic book blue lights into space. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And I don't, I don't know if Gal Gadot is really the best actress to continue being Wonder Woman. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously uh, you haven't seen it and I'm sorry to spoil people. Like <laughs> I was looking forward to it cause I enjoyed the first one. I really liked, you know, I, I I'm a stand for Chris Pine. He's one of top three Hollywood Chris's. Uh, <laughs> I believe he's severely underappreciated, underutilized. Uh, yeah. Because his his emotional range and what he brings to these characters, he's not just a pretty face, you know. Star Trek Beyond, the third Star Trek film with him in it, there's some real gravitas to what he's putting in as his own version of Captain Kirk. Um, yeah. And so seeing him come back as as the, the other uh, World War Steve... <laughs> uh, who sacrificed himself right. in a plane <laughs> uh was uh was really nice but Captain overall united states <laughs> apparently the most american name is steve who would have thought yeah i mean mike might be the most popular but uh, i'm perfectly fine being the number two name of most years <laughs> yeah um, I haven't really gotten into much else, but it's kind of disappointing hearing that about Wonder Woman. I mean, because there is a lot of stuff where it's like evil is not like an inhuman characteristic. Like, you know, I think there's evil within all of us. And, you know, you can have that just be a villain. Like, it doesn't have to be, like you said, the the comic book, like twisted appearance, crazy um goals or morals like that's kind of within everyone especially when you're talking about oil cooperatives well yeah and to to kind of go back on it and sorry to interrupt you there no um, that was that was a butt that was going to trail off into nothing <laughs> <laughs> all right uh <laughs> but it um it is kind of going for that for most of the movie and like i I felt that the overall that this character of Max Lord being like a wishmaster basically and just mm -hmm. like giving into, you know, giving people whatever they wanted. Um, and it was really appealing to the worst part of humanity. Like that was really that resonated. The problem is they said it in 1984 uh, again, before any other DC uh, universe movie films. Mm hmm. And like in the third act, they're gearing up for nuclear holocaust. Like nukes get launched and have to uh, be stopped. And like society is crumbling because everyone's getting what they want. But it's a very monkey's paw. Literally, that is name dropped in the movie. <laughs> uh, and it made me look up. When was monkey's paw published? Because it was dropped by Steve, who died in World War One. It's like, <laughs> oh, 1902. Okay, then. Yeah, yeah kind of an er story um mm -hmm. they i don't think that they yeah just knew how to write a compelling end and maybe that that clash between uh diana wonder woman and um the cheetah was like mandated by the studio because mm -hmm. it just feels really strange to then go into this 
philosophical thing, which I think is what Patty Jenkins wanted to do with the first movie, not have a big dumb superhero fight with Ares, but have more of a philosophical debate. Um, And it just didn't land and it didn't resonate. And setting it in 1984 was kind of pointless other than some kitschy, like throwback in style and fashion. It was really, whereas previous things that more recent things that have been set in the eighties have been taken taking out the context of the eighties being, you know, great. This was like, it's the eighties. Look at all the colors. (laughs) Yeah. Trying to get that Thor Ragnarok vibe without the, the, the kitschiness of Thor Ragnarok. Um, and the, the ability to blend the the comedic timing with the, the sincerity of the story. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a real, like Joss Whedon, Taika Waititi kind of trademark. One day we'll get that superhero movie where the third act is just them in front of a uh, curtained backdrop on stage and two podiums. And my <laughs> opponent here, would have you believe that, <laughs> that punching things is the way to solve our problems? <laughs> One day we'll get that great philosophical debate. I mean, it could happen in the next, uh, uh, Doctor Strange movie. Yeah. <laughs> we never saw all those uh, instances Dormammu, of I've with come Dormammu. To negotiate. <laughs> Dormammu, I've come to arbitrate. Dormammu, I've come to debate. And your unwillingness to debate me proves <laughs> that your position is wrong. So, I mean, you're still just grinding away on cyberpunk then, yeah? Yeah, yeah. In good news for Cyberpunk, the thing that I thought was spoiled for me was not an endgame spoiler. It was the result of a, a mission uh, that you could have tackled like halfway through. So, <laughs> right. I still remain relatively unspoiled on the ending. Um, I did follow a walkthrough for one mission that I that um, you and I talked about that will get me like the secret ending. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't I didn't know it was that mission specifically, but then it's like, oh, you'll unlock a secret part of the ending. It's like, all right, does, yeah. does that because that conversation kind of tricky. I we, we don't have to, like, talk around it the whole time, but no, those I are maybe maybe not the options I would have picked. Definitely own, not. So. And the fact that it's esoteric and it, and it unlocks a secret version of a supposedly secret ending that you then, when you're at another point, have to wait five minutes for it to unlock as an option. Huh. It it bothers me that it's so esoteric. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's, that's the tough part with video games where they give you, like, an option of choice and it's they don't give you the whole, like, like sentence that your character's going to say. They give you, like, a little description. It's not as bad in cyberpunk as it was in something like Fallout 4, where they just gave you like two words. <laughs> yes, no, sarcastic yes, and later. Those are your <laughs> options. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think the other the other problem I have with it that kind of just cl- crystallized in my mind is that when um, when you say you even did those options in the, like that was just how you felt. And those are the, the choice. If you don't wait those five minutes, you, you lose out the, you know, on that go around of the ending, you have to mm-hmm. go back to. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's almost like a, 
uh, an art piece where like with a, with a Mobius strip at what, it, what the <laughs> game does at the very end. Cause it makes a hard save that kicks you back to it. If you choose things. Hmm. Interesting. Soon, soon I'll finish that game and then immediately probably play it again. Yeah. Like Try to you. break yourself of sneaky shooter. Yeah. I'm, I think next run through is going to be just arm blades and indiscriminate killing. So that'll be fun. <laughs> oh, boy, speaking, of indis- <laughs> speaking of indiscriminate killing. Hey, oh. Uh, Hey, uh, this episode's matchup is about good cops doing bad things for good reasons to defeat bad guys for the good of society. So grab your Beretta, put on a Christmas song, and don't park underneath any high rise buildings. It's time for Die Hard versus Lethal Weapon. Pew, 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 pew. <laughs> Nailed it. Guns. Uh, so, what was your experience with these movies before watching them for the podcast? Uh, I think like most of the movies that came out a little bit before both of our times, um, it was definitely on TV at some point. I think mm-hmm. I ended up seeing Lethal Weapon 4 was the first one I saw because that was like <laughs> the newest one at the time. And that's right, the one with right. uh, Jet Li. Um, oh, yeah. I think, uh, I, I think I've seen the opening of that. Yeah. With the, the man with the flamethrower. Yes, 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 yes. Um, and then Die Hard, I'm pretty sure I caught most of Die Hard 3, Die Hard with a Vengeance, before I mm. saw Die Hard 1. Because, again, Die Hard, the Die Hard with a Vengeance was the newer film, thus on syndication and rebroadcasting more. Mm-hmm. And so going back to the, the, the originators of these storied action, 90s action movie franchises is uh, kind of a trip. You see where they... They trimmed some of the fat out and where they maybe added some of the bloat. Yeah. Um, I think for me, I, I saw Die Hard at some point. I don't even remember when, but I've seen it a you fair have couple seen of times. Die Hard. Yes. I have always been dying hard. I, I saw um, Live Free or Die Hard in theaters, I think. Same. Just because it seemed like a fun romp and it, it kind of is, you know. I would say of all the sequels that are written as a diehard film, because that's a trick to a good diehard. It can't be written for diehard. Um, <laughs> yeah. Live free or die hard up until the third act is the most diehardy of them. <laughs> yeah. And then we're jumping from freeway overpasses onto planes and planes that aren't even out yet at the time. <laughs> right. Uh, and Lethal Weapon, I had seen parts of it coming into this, but I don't think I'd ever watched it like back to back or I mean, beginning to end. Um, so that was a fun, a fun thing for me. Speaking of fun things, <laughs> here's your bacon number fun fact. Um, these movies have one degree of separation because two of the actors, Grand L. Bush and Mary Ellen Trainer, appear in both movies. <laughs> so, you, what you know, and a lot of like cast and crew, and and um, the producer, uh, Joel Silver, Joel Silver produced both of them. It was kind of like if you're gonna make an action movie, like you call up these people, you know, here's here's yeah. the Rolodex, get these people out there. 
specifically like Joel Silver, this is how he made his money and became a name in Hollywood was these kind of films and kind of redefining mm-hmm. the genre. Um, one of the, the last major Joel Silver productions I can think of is the Matrix trilogy. That was Joel Silver. At least the yeah. very first one was. So, I mean, the 90s were, were Joel Silver productions created the that type of action movie. Yeah, kind of like a Bay Bruckheimer kind of producer well, I mean, relationship, but, I guess. Didn't always work with the same director, but... Yeah, but a, 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 a Bruckheimer production was always going to have these kind of looks and feels to him. Cause, right. Uh, Bruckheimer produced the other uh, buddy cop uh, action comedy, uh, Beverly Hills Cop. Oh, I thought you were going to say Bad Boys. <laughs> and then uh, Bad Boys, yeah, that's the kind of the transition in the, the mm-hmm. mid to late 90s of, you know, what action movies are going to become. So, yeah. Unfortunately, maybe. Um, also, uh, the Lethal Weapon writer Shane Black and Die Hard director John McTiernan would go on to work together on Last Action Hero, uh, a send-up of the movies that they helped create. Yeah. But if you come to this podcast for nothing else than the bacon connection between the two main actors, <laughs> here it is. Uh, Mel Gibson was in Conspiracy Theory with Julia Roberts. Julia Roberts was in Ocean's 12 with Bruce Willis. Uh, as you mentioned, because they are real life friends. So <laughs> it's a very meta plot point in Oceans 12. <laughs> exactly. So bacon number of two there. Um, so this is our, our season finale for Match Cut. We are finishing out our second season. Um, a selfish congratulations to you and me for getting this far. So in the next season and starting with this episode, uh, we're going to start moving away from strictly matching IMDb scores um, to focus more on movies with shared themes and shared plot points and maybe movies that aren't so esoteric. <laughs> but, you know, hey, still go watch um, Sukiyaki Western Django because it's still a good movie. And, uh, you know, we'll try to bring in some of those maybe in single episodes. But if you're curious about what the denizens of IMDb rated these two movies, uh, Die Hard is rated an 8.2, a notable achievement for an action movie. And uh, Lethal Weapon is rated a 7.6. So do these scores represent what we think about these films? Let's discuss. Let's have a debate. Debate me, Matt. (laughs) In the marketplace of ideas. (laughs) Yeah, after this quick break. Die Hard is a 1998 movie based on the novel by Roderick Thorpe with screenplay by Jeb Stewart and Stephen E. D'Souza. Directed by John McTiernan, starring Bruce Willis, Bonnie Bedelia, uh, Reginald Vell Johnson, and Alan Rickman. John McTiernan is best known for Die Hard, Predator, and The Last Action Hero. Fun fact, uh, in quotations, it's not very fun. The reason McTiernan doesn't have any credits after 2003's amazing film, Rollerball, is for the uh, is because he was in jail for perjury and lying to an F, uh, a federal official and illegal wiretapping. And directing Rollerball. 
<laughs> it was it was the rollerball was actually the reason he had a legal wiretap and lied about it. <laughs> Do you know any more about the story behind that? Like, what was he hoping so, to gain? He was wiretapping the producer of the film because he thought that they were trying to make a different film. They were going to take away like his directing things and put his name on it, and but he wouldn't be able to get an Alan Smithy, I assume. So mm. he hired a private detective to wiretap to find if he said anything negative about a, negative about him or the production company. So he could use it to blackmail him and be like, look, get rid of this producer. I don't want to work with him anymore. Yeah. His, uh, his reward was jail <laughs> and having all his assets seized. Well, writer Stephen E. D'Souza is also known for 48 Hours and the Arnold Schwarzenegger action film classic Commando. Writer Jeb Stewart is also known for the 90s action film The Fugitive, as well as the sequel to 48 Hours, Another 48 Hours. (laughs) Whole bunch of bacon, not like bacon, really close proximity with these two films. Spaghetti bacon. It's a a carbonara. Oh, carbonara. Carbonara. (laughs) New York police officer John McClane is flying into a holiday party thrown by his estranged wife's company in California. Little does he know he's the right man in the wrong place as a group of terrorists take the party goers hostage. Now John has to use everything at his disposal to somehow make it out of the building alive or die hard. Dun, dun, dun. Our other movie is Lethal Weapon, a 1987 movie written by Shane Black and directed by Richard Donner, starring Mel Gibson, Danny Glover, Gary Busey, and featuring Gary Busey's teeth. (laughs) Director Richard Donner is best known for the Lethal Weapon series, 1978's Superman, Lady Hawk, The Goonies, and another vaguely Christmas movie, Scrooged. It's it's less vague in that one, though. I was going to say, it's pretty more blatantly a Christmas (laughs) film. Writer Shane Black is best known for Lethal Weapon 1 and 2. Uh, Last Action Hero, The Nice Guys, and previously on Match Cut, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Pew pew. Uh, Roger Murtaugh is a family man and sensible cop who is quickly approaching retirement. Martin Riggs is basically his opposite, a loose cannon and suicidal after the death of his wife. Now the police department has paired them together in the hopes that some of Murtaugh will run off rub off on Riggs. However, when the pair of them stumble upon a deceptively elaborate drug case, they'll need all of their talents combined to crack the case. Also, Riggs is the lethal weapon. That's that's where the t- title comes from. Yeah, that, yeah, that's right. Murtaugh does call him that. You absolute weapon. <laughs> uh, lethal weapon shouldn't hit. <laughs> Oof. So... Late 80s action movies. Let's talk about them. (laughs) So Lethal Weapon kind of codifies the genre of buddy cop uh, action Mm -hmm. movie. The first is really 48 hours, um, but they're not buddies. Like it gets the the credit because it's two unlikely partners, but they hate each other in that movie. (laughs) Apparently, I've actually never seen it. It's supposed to be pretty decent. Um, Yeah. Whereas Lethal Weapon, like they they don't like each other, but they like through the course of the 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 story, like it's never an outright hate and disgust at the other person. It's just like, what is this person trying to do? You know, I got to figure him out. And like, there's a lot of really unfortunate 
um, labeling in Lethal Weapon of like, <laughs> you know, mental health and not being taken seriously. Oh, you know, I've seen it a dozen times. Uh, you know, Riggs is just trying to draw a psycho pension. Oh, so a man mm-hmm. who has severe... Uh, severe depression with suicidal ideation and uh, most likely untreated PTSD from being in the Phoenix program during Vietnam. (laughs) Right. Acknowledging that there was a guy I took out Lao and it must have been a thousand yards. Hell, I wins. Only a few guys could have made that shot. The only thing I was ever good at was that. That's Mm -hmm. real healthy. (laughs) Yeah. That's all I know how to do is kill. Oh. Because I'm a weapon. (laughs) He should be a police officer in L.A. in the 80s. Yeah. Fortunately, after this, ex-military stopped becoming law enforcement officers. Yeah, there wasn't a militarization of police, and there were certainly no major crimes involving (laughs) uh, police cover-up of their indiscretions and extreme violence towards the the populace. Yeah. That's just that's just like the basic like podcast showbiz joke where it's just like and it never happened again. I know I've made that joke a hundred times on this podcast, but much bigger um, and better podcasts have made that joke more often <laughs> and more succinctly. <laughs> yeah. We'll get uh, there someday. Maybe. The lofty but, air um, of <laughs> the dollop. Yeah. Getting people to advertise, being paid to do this. Who? The, the my neoliberalist dream <laughs> yeah I'm a small business owner <laughs> I'm a boss bitch <laughs> um I really enjoyed Mel Gibson's uh performance in this movie I think that you know there was some good scenes you know maybe sometimes his like portrayal of this is what a crazy man is like kind of boils down to just making facial tics but I think the uh, I think the scene in his trailer with the Beretta, you know, is pretty powerful. Oh yeah, like the reason we don't like Mel Gibson isn't was because he's a bad actor. It's because <laughs> he said some very questionable things while drunk. <laughs> yeah, and lost his Laker tickets. My Laker tickets. <laughs> um, but. His acting, especially, you know, the solo scenes where he has to carry it as as Riggs and, you know, is showing a man who's on the edge of just eating that bullet and like, mm-hmm. you know, not to get too real here. You're like, I've, I've been severely suicidal. I have attempted in the past. And um, yeah, some of those days leading up to the to my my attempt were like, I just need one reason not to. And. You know, mm-hmm. as, as simple as it is, it's this reason. Yeah. And and so, yeah, that was like, I think that was a lot more nuanced than the, the handling of it in the rest of the film in terms of like the way his partners talk about it. Like, I'm going to give Shane Black the benefit of a doubt there. And like he was commenting on how it's not treated seriously when this guy is very seriously mentally ill and everyone's dismissing it and thinking he's trying to be phony with it. The doctor is not listened to about it. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's even like explicitly discussed, you know, in that scene where there's like, Oh, eighties guys, you know, they cry in bed now and all this stuff. Like there is a very like 
public dismissal of it in another in another scene. Uh, Jane Black woke. Could it be? Eh, there's some other problematic stuff later on, especially with the Predator that goes mm-hmm. on and stuff that happened behind the scenes there. Um, but look, you're either woke or you're canceled, and we got to cancel Shane Black now. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna get like I said, I'm gonna give him the benefit of the doubt because of the character of Gay Perry from Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Mm-hmm. Like while that his his character's name is colloquially known as Gay Perry. Val Kilmer's portrayal as a gay man has like his sexuality only comes into it because people call him that. Yeah. Like literally it's just not who there's also that one scene where he's kind of fucking with the guy, but there's a uh-huh. purpose to it. Anyway, we already talked about kiss, kiss, bang, bang. We're not going to talk. <laughs> yeah. About you it can again. go back to that episode and go watch more. kiss, kiss, bang, bang. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think in, in this movie and in die hard, you get a lot of like, solo scenes of the actors like you you know you spend a lot of time with just bruce willis in in some in some of the way that you spend time alone with with uh riggs Riggs and murtaugh yeah i think that you know the the key thing where these were you know what these are still well known and landmark films in hollywood especially in the action genre is the physical and emotive vulnerability of the leads you Mm -hmm. know uh, not to undersell Danny Glover as Roger Murtaugh, like his character is like really, really messed up that like, you know, most of his time on the force has been, you know, pretty nonviolent, but like now he's paired with Riggs and he's almost died all these times. Like I'm, I'm literally so close to retirement. I have a family to worry about. I want to go home to my family. Yeah. Which has unfortunate implications to, contemporary cops and their viewpoints. But at the time, just go back just isolate movie, movie, not reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the emotional vulnerability between uh, um, John McClane and Sergeant Al Powell over the radio. Like this is the only friend yeah. I've got right now. The only person who's keeping me going emotionally as I'm being, you know, shot at, thrown around, blown up, you know, have to constantly, do things like, you know, do the right thing and it's nearly getting me killed and I'm getting no, you know, (laughs) no pats on the back for it, like, which is fine, but I wish they wouldn't just be dicks about it to me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of men opening up to each other in these two movies. Yeah. Where, you know, obviously there's the famous, you know, conversation of why Al Powell is more behind the desk and, and riding a car. It's because he was involved in the shooting of a, a, like, Again, isolating that from real things that have happened where cops get away with that every day, like Mm -hmm. within the narrative of the movie and like the ideals of the movie, you know, cops, like it's like, it's terrible that he did this thing and he is torn up about it and he cannot pull his gun anymore. Yeah. Um, Which is weird that his arc then become like, again, it's modernized looking back on it. His arc is his redemption is pulling it on the insane, like Terminator esque uh, bad guy, uh, Carl, who pops out of his morgue bag with his aug still in hand about to (laughs) blow away John McClane and Holly Gennaro (laughs) McClane. Right. Yeah, it's a it's a weird thing. Like, and I I think that some of the charm of these movies is the like kind of depth that they have. It's not just 
And it it makes me think of um, Bad Boys 2, where Martin Lawrence's character kind of sits down and has this conversation with Will Smith. I cannot remember their character names, but it doesn't matter. It's um, Martin Lawrence and Will Smith, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> right, right. Martin and Will. You know, it's like, hey, man, you know, I can't do this. Like, it's just, it's the same thing. It's like, I have a family, you know, I can't be off with your, you know, gigolo Ferrari driving ways. Like, I got to think about them after he gets shot in the ass. Um, Was that, but, uh, that wasn't the time, the shit just got real. <laughs> I mean, later it is when his family gets kidnapped, his sister or whatever. Yeah. That was bad boy's. Two. Two, okay. Because in, right. in Bad Boys 1, Will Smith's character drives a Porsche, and somehow on a cop's salary, he's able to afford a Ferrari the next movie. <laughs> yeah, he may be involved in something. Um, But I think, like, th- those movies, and, you know, it's it's Michael Bay whatever stuff, but it's, it's a pale imitation of what Lethal Weapon achieved or, you know, a bit of what Die Hard achieved. And it's, it doesn't, it doesn't hit in the same way as like the originators. Yeah. You know, the, the other, you know, the reason Die Hard is such an Ur film and why it has such a high rating on, you know, IMDb, obviously the more recent millennial joke take or people (laughs) seriously arguing that it is a Christmas film. You can believe what you want to believe. We're not, I don't feel like getting into that debate on the on our podcast because oh, I, I was going to bring it up, but I believe it is a Christmas film. If people say it's not a Christmas film, fine. Yeah, but people going, um, actually, it's a Christmas film all the time anymore <laughs> is it's tiresome, right? Yeah, and I don't know. I I like we picked these because they're quote-unquote Christmas films. They, they are set around the holidays and they have trappings of it as part of their theming. Uh, yeah, without, they both oh, open up with Christmas songs. Yes, and and, and with Christmas songs. Yeah. And but, ha- have like that togetherness and like holiday spirit, but you know, we, we killed some international terrorists along the way. I mean, exceptional thieves along the way. <laughs> Whatever they are. I I don't I'm less ready to like call these Christmas films just because they don't like there are themes I guess that have to do with family but they're not like they're not about Christmas like they're not Christmas films you could still watch this at any other time in the year and it would still have the like it wouldn't lose anything for it uh yeah I would say yeah both of these they're in their runtime. They don't feel like a Christmas film. There are tra- like a like there are trappings of Christmas uh, around them, and they're using that as a, a, a backdrop for the drama. But the drama is not an inherently you know Christmassy drama. Stopping mm-hmm. <laughs> international terrorism <laughs> and breaking up a a veteran backed shadow company drug ring, <laughs> yeah, uh, are not Christmas goals. Yeah. And I, I think that's also another another aspect that make these movies good is like you have Die Hard where it's like, you know, they put on this facade of terrorism, but actually they're just bank robbers. And it, it kind of has it has like this second level to all the heists. It's not just 
like the and then lethal weapon has the the veterans involvement in this drug thing that make it like a whole different issue um and i think a lot of these plots having like a second layer to them even if like diehards is a little superficial but it's but I, it's there and it, it's something different than just like a typical action plot that you would that you would see more often nowadays well, I think that, that, you know, that's the thing is going into Die Hard, I'm sure all the trailers, none of the trailers, you know, reveal that it is a a, a heist film mm-hmm. nestled in, like, they, they just made it look like an action film set in a tower. That's what people, you know, remember. Oh, Die Hard 1, the one in the, the office building. Got it. Right. Um, and, it, and, and now it's taken for granted that the the bad guys are doing one thing, but it's actually another. Mm-hmm. Um, it's played a little more straight in Die Hard 2, Die Harder. And I would also say that is more of a Christmas film because it's set at Dulles International Airport <laughs> on like Christmas Eve with Christmas. Like it's in the snow. It's like yeah. it's trying to be the Christmas film that the first one wasn't in a sense. And I think mm-hmm. it's it's lesser for it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But you get that. You get some of those things where it's like, oh, the main bad guys are are pretending to be one thing, but they're actually the other. And um, that goes for like all of them forward. Yeah. Whereas the lethal weapon films, it's, they kind of do like these mild, like second layer of like the motivations Um, early on in the quarantine, all the lethal weapon films were on some streaming services. And so I Mm -hmm. I decided I'm going to watch them all, all of them. (laughs) I watched one through four. Because I could, and you can't stop me. <laughs> and they all kind of have this appears as one thing, and it's something more going on. Obviously, famously, lethal weapon through diplomatic immunity. <laughs> it's just been revoked. Yep that, that is that is the line he says. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for acknowledging my knowledge of that one line from Lethal Weapon Two. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think the, uh, in particular, the veteran stuff kind of, as you were explaining it to me in lethal weapon, I think makes it pretty interesting, uh, especially like the mystique around like, Oh, what is, you know, what's happening to these people coming back from Vietnam? Yeah. Like the, the, the thing that you watch going back because it, it becomes less of a point as the movies go on. In fact, it doesn't matter after that first movie really is that, <laughs> yeah that Riggs and Murtaugh are both Vietnam vets and serve different things that, you know, Riggs was special forces and, you know, uh, Murtaugh was, I think, airborne or, or, or something like that. So both, you know, giving them a quick shorthand that these guys know how to handle themselves, but then also bringing it back into the, the narrative rather than just be there. Like he was a badass, uh, you know, ex Marine from Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's like, no, that's kind of important because, after an explosion, they're questioning a kid, trying to find out, you know, who set the bomb. You know, Riggs brings up that, oh, it was a mercury, a mercury uh, switch that flipped this bomb that a lot of guys use. The CIA use these in Vietnam. And then, no, that guy has that tattoo that you have. And he's like, that's a special forces tattoo that seals the deal. <laughs> yeah. It is literally veterans that are doing this. Right. Whereas there's similar kind of like actual cop deduction that goes on in uh, Die Hard where, you know, when first talking to Al Powell, when he's still going by Roy to Al Powell, it's like, 
you know, they're, they're professional, they're well-trained East German, uh, you know, uh, they, I can tell by their fakes and their clothing labels and their cigarettes, like, mm-hmm. like that kind of all matters. Cause you're figuring it out as the characters are figuring out what's going on. That's something that I yeah. like about Die Hard is, you know, as much as you are seeing, there's not, you know, cutaways to things that like are happening elsewhere to establish because very early on in Lethal Weapon, I believe you, you know that it's veterans that are doing it mm-hmm. before it is revealed, revealed to Riggs and Murtog, right. the audience by extension, because they, they call the guy the general and like talk about how he's just hiring mercenaries. And- right. There, there's all these not subtle hints about it. Whereas there are more subtle hints throughout Die Hard that Hans Gruber's group is not actually terrorists. Yeah. You know, his commenting, him, him quoting uh, Ozymandias. <laughs> and Alexander right. wept for there will no more worlds to conquer. It's like, that's what this is about? Our, <laughs> our, our uh, Indonesia project? Contrary to what you people believe, we're going to develop that region, not exploit it. As much as I would love to talk men's fashion and you know <laughs> uh, and uh, South Pacific politics to you, I'm after this one thing, and like yeah. they they can't like Takagi can't really comprehend it because it's like no like you're terrorists. You said you're terrorists. You've done the terrorist thing, and yeah. you know demanded the release of political prisoners. Well, that's not not that. That's yet. afterwards. But the, the, Takagi has left the building at that point. <laughs> Takagi will not be around to experience that. <laughs> Tataki will not be joining us for the rest of his life. Uh, honestly, the other great thing about it is there is so much charisma from the villain in Die Hard. Yeah. I think that's something that's very lacking from uh, Lethal Weapon. Lethal Weapon is carried by Riggs and Murtaugh's, you know, uh, fish out of water, odd couple um, yeah. nature. The charisma's on one side of the table. Right. Whereas. You know, you got Gary Busey being kind of weird and like alien, but that's like, <laughs> again, anymore, that's just Gary Busey. Right. So. Either. Yeah. I mean, these, these are, these are the forefathers of action for a reason. They're both very good. Did you, do you favor one over the other? I definitely favor Die Hard. I think Lethal Weapon runs on a bit too long. It's not as tightly focused. Um mm-hmm. It's a little, it's a little too proto, and I think that's more to do to Richard Donner as the director is just not the the right, didn't have the right vision for how to shoot action necessarily going into the future. Yeah, um, because besides Lethal Weapon one, and then two having the the memes from you know Family Guy and whatnot, especially for our generation, <laughs> you know, do you know the plot to Lethal Weapon three? Do you know the plot to Lethal Weapon four? No, I do not. So, I mean, it's not sticking in. And mo- like, I always forget the plot to Lethal Weapon 1. That's like, oh, yeah, it's, uh, they're bringing in heroin and uh, it's, it's veterans. <laughs> yeah. But like, to me personally, I think the 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 movie should end around the time they're in the desert with the, the daughter being, you know, traded. Like mm-hmm. it should end. Sh- it should end shortly after their they break out from their interrogation rather than yeah. it dra- drags on for another 30, 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. And it, it doesn't need that. Yeah. It was already a, 
it was already, in my opinion, poorly paced because it's so much like vignette scenes going through it that are not like, they're just not always adding something to the overall mystery. Mm -hmm. Whereas every scene in Die Hard is either John McClane using his wits to escape, you getting another piece of the puzzle of what Hans Gruber and his group are after, or um, it's a diversion that sets either one side, the the protagonist's uh, goals back or the antagonist's goals back. Yeah. Like it's a very tightly written script. And I think that's kind of owing to the fact that they were, they were only getting pages as they were filming because of last minute rewrites <laughs> uh, requested by McTiernan. McTiernan only signed on to the film to direct it because uh, like they would give him some oversight of the script. And he's like, well, first of all, you got to rewrite it. No one likes terrorists, make them bank robbers. <laughs> yeah. And this is a script that had been sitting mostly complete for at that point, almost 20 years. Yeah, based on the novel. And it's a sequel to a movie that was uh, starred Frank Sinatra, and he technically had the option to star in it. <laughs> yeah. Which he obviously declined. Because he was 70. Yes. Or so at the time. Um, I mean, that, that would be a, a different, interesting movie, and hopefully with deep fakes we can finally get old, old blue eyes in there. <laughs> Do it my way. <laughs> Yippee Kai my way, Mr. Mr. Falcon. Falcon. <laughs> um, I think for this watch, it's it's real close for me. It was it's one of those one of those ones where ask me tomorrow and I may feel differently. But I think this time around I really liked uh, Lethal Weapon a little more. I do think that the the plot is a little weaker. Um, but for me, it was a lot of like watching um, Riggs and Murtaugh talk to each other, figure out their partnership, go through their stuff like that. Um, that carried the movie a lot for me. It's also like it does have those those moments of just like, wow, this scene is is still going. You There's like no cuts here. You couldn't edit some of this out. Um but it's interesting that you bring up the pacing because Die Hard is almost a half hour longer than Lethal Weapon. And Die Hard definitely doesn't feel like that. Yeah, I, I think it is the inertia of the scenes. You can say, again, it draws a little long right around the time the FBI is flying the helicopter in. But I mm -hmm. think they do a good thing with the music, which I feel is almost non-existent in Lethal Weapon. I mean, I... I got a lot of the music just because I knew Eric Clapton did it. And so I was like every guitar lick, I was like, Oh, thanks Clapton. <laughs> but it, it felt more like the stuff you get later on from Bruckheimer productions in CSI, mm. where it's just tones. It's not really yeah. music, music that's helping accentuate a scene or whatnot. Whereas it's no, it's no Toto in Dune. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Look, that is an amazing score. <laughs> yeah. Check out our last episode where we talk about Dune and Valerian, if you haven't. So I think it's kind of a similar thing that we're not as weak as the as last time's pairings. The mm -hmm. I'd say these are more equal, but all things being equal, I think Die Hard is the tighter, more technically competent film, more well-crafted film. Mm -hmm. um, 
I think later, some later imitators of the Buddy Cop movie that Lethal Weapon pioneers are a little bit better. Um, yeah. You have the sequel to Beverly Hills Cop. You have um, Rush Hour. At least Rush Hour 1 and 2 are much tighter examples of a Buddy Cop film, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas Die Hard sequels has like a weird Star Trek. Every other one is good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the um, so the meta scores, which IMDb also lists, are much closer for these two movies. Die Hard is seventy two, Lethal Weapons is sixty eight. Mm-hmm. Um, in my heart, I liked Lethal Weapon. And it could just be could just be because it's relatively new for me, but I think the closeness between those scores is is much more appropriate as a, as opposed to the eight point two versus seven point six. So yeah, I would they, should, probably, they should at least be real tight together. I would at least give uh, from the IMDB score. I would give Lethal Weapon a few more points because <laughs> because it has more heart and more sincerity going on in it than a lot of other, and then especially of what it becomes down the road is like almost a parody of itself. <laughs> yeah, um, the first Lethal Weapon, you know, has a heart and there's some some care and. You know, where these two characters start is not where they end. So there's good script writing in that regard where, you know, at the very end, Murtaugh or Scar, excuse me, uh, Riggs is like, he's no longer suicidal. He's letting go of his sadness and realizing, yes, you know, I love my wife. It's hard every day without her, but there is a future for me. And mm-hmm. I, I can, I can finally start to live again and be better. Um, and Murtaugh realizes that he's not actually too old for this. Um, he's still got a lot of life left in him and he's not over the hill or, you know, obsolete anymore. And that, right. it, you know, maybe part of his redemption is keeping uh, this partnership with Riggs going. Yeah. So, I mean, I would recommend them both, particularly if you haven't seen them. You know, so, sorry hurry. to spoil some twists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hurry while the Christmas spirit is still in the air, and you can absorb the full meaning. Um, the full meaning of Christmas is dropping terrorists off Nakatomi Tower. <laughs> uh, one thing we forgot to mention, or uh, I missed in the uh, bacon numbers, is uh, Al Long also appeared in both films. He is the the Crunch Bar terrorist. Oh yeah, and uh, the guy who gets to zap uh, Riggs with the electrocuted sponge. That's right. How long? Uli in uh, Die Hard. I don't know if he has mm-hmm. a credit. And Endo in Lethal Weapon. And he dies very quickly in both. Yeah, he makes but it further appear- in Die Hard. <laughs> does appear in both. Yeah, and that was the. He's a survivor. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> relatively. <laughs> I think Carl's the survivor for a, for a bad guy, but I think yeah that that'll do it for these movies. Unless you had a a one more thing, die weapon and lethal harder. It's a good point. It's a good point. <laughs> so that is it for us for the year for this season. Um, I think as far as what we're doing next, we're definitely doing an episode with Tenet. Um, that is available for streaming now. Uh, I don't think there's any free streaming options, but 
a couple bucks on actually no it is actually only available for twenty dollars on most streaming platforms yeah that's that ain't a couple bucks <laughs> yeah i i thought i saw like 399 on youtube but that is not true it is 1999 everywhere so maybe uh legally <laughs> yeah maybe sail into some uh some skull and bones waters yeah Find a way to watch Tenet uh, before we come back with that on our next podcast. Um, and we'll see what the, what the next season of Match Cup brings. It's exciting because not even we know at this point. <laughs> <laughs> For the Match Cup podcast, I've been Matt. I've been Aaron. Stay hit, safe. Have a happy new year. Uh, hit us up on uh, at matchcut or matchcut at gmail.com or at matchcut on Twitter if you want to let us know anything, and yeah, we'll see you in the new year. Bye bye. Bye. Bye bye now. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks for flying with us. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye. I shall bite the onion. I shall eat it up. <laughs> Fun thing to do while you lose your taste to COVID. Do you still have that power? No. Uh, my taste, my sense of taste is back, but my sense of smell is at like 50%, 60%. Like, Damn. I used to have a really good sense of smell and it's gone away. On the plus side, I don't have to shower as much. Uh, I don't know if that's how that works. <laughs>